Jesus. We are convinced that as we look at him, at what he was really like, what he really said, we'll we'll get a, a stronger idea of what he continues to be like, how he loves us, how he acts towards us, how he treats us. And as we see him as he is, something profound happens in us. It changes us. He changes us to become more like himself. So we want to look into his face. Second thing we want to do as we're going through this is to uh, see the reason that Peter grouped the stories that we'll be looking at the way he did. If you remember from last week, those of you who were here, Peter is actually the source of the book of Mark. Mark wrote down the stories that Peter... Ooh, I suddenly got emphatic there, didn't I? Uh, Mark wrote down the stories that, that Peter used as he taught. And as Peter made a point... He'd use stories to illustrate and drive that that point home, stories about what Jesus did or what Jesus said or things like that. And so what we want to do is discover what's the point in in the different sections that we are looking at. Last week was really about decisions uh, to get started, decisions to begin. We saw that John the Baptist had already begun his ministry, and Jesus made the decision to initiate, to start his ministry by going and being baptized by John, identifying with with John and those people that were following John. And then Jesus called the disciples to make a decision, to decide whether they were ready to follow him. And we saw last week was a time for decision for us as well. Are we ready to follow him? Well, now that that decision is made, we want to see where he's going, therefore where we're going. So look with me at the first part of our story in uh, Mark 1, verse 21. Let me just read, oh, I don't know, eight verses or so, down to verse 28. And they went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. And they were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. And just then, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, saying, What do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Throwing him into a convulsion, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. And they were all amazed. So that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately the news about him went out everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. So, what we see is Peter and Andrew and James and John all went, and, and Jesus all went to Capernaum. And we're told that immediately Jesus went right into the synagogue and began to teach. Now, synagogues were somewhat like our churches. Uh, The word synagogue just means a gathering place. The word church just means a gathering place. Synagogue was a a group of ten or more Jewish families. Anywhere in in a single location that there were ten Jewish families, they were instructed to form a synagogue, a gathering place. So every community throughout the the ancient world where there were ten or more Jewish families, had a gathering place, had a synagogue. What would happen at synagogue was three things. First was the reciting of prayers. Second, someone would read from the Old Testament scriptures. And third, someone would get up and explain those scriptures. 
That's all that would happen. There was no singing. There was no worship. Uh, there was no other uh, things going on. The, 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 the worship and the sacrifices, those were all to take place at the temple. That was still the center of worship, the temple in Jerusalem. The synagogue was focused on the, on the word of God, the explaining of the word of God. The ruler of the synagogue had the responsibility of week after week finding someone who would read the scriptures, someone who would explain the scriptures. And often when there was a traveling teacher coming through, he would ask that person to get up and to read some scripture and to explain them. At this point, Jesus had begun his ministry of of preaching, of teaching uh, the good news of God. Uh, He had not fallen into disfavor with the Jews. And so when he came to town, they asked him, to get up and to speak. They wanted to hear what he had to say. So that's what's, that's what's going on. We're told when he finished, the people were impressed. They were amazed. And they remarked, this guy teaches with authority, not like the scribes. The scribes were the regular teachers. They were the, the scholars. They studied what everybody said about the scriptures. They would study all of the commentaries, all of, all of the research done. And they would get up and they would start quoting this expert. And, and they, they, would, they would talk about the speculation you know, of this authority and that authority. And that's what their talks would consist of. This person says this and this person says that. And here's how it all ties together. They said, when Jesus got up, he talked like somebody who knew what the scriptures were actually saying. He understood it for himself. And and he could explain exactly what God was communicating. Jesus would say, this is the point of this passage. And this is what it means in your life. And this is how you're to respond to it. And when people heard Jesus teach, they knew they were hearing the truth. Not some abstract uh, intellectual truth, but the real life truth about who God is, about how much God loves them, about how they can survive with all the fears and frustrations of of an unstable economy, the truth about how to have healthy relationships, how, how to break the patterns in their lives that were destroying them, the people they loved. And, and as Jesus taught, it, it, it struck a chord deep in these people. It resonated with their spirit. It had that ring of truth. And they knew they were hearing the truth. So they were amazed. Jesus cut through all of the double talk, all of the high-sounding jargon, all of the, the pretense, all of the complex systems. He cut straight to the heart of things. He simply... Gently, clearly laid the truth of Scripture out in front of these people. And it knocked their socks off. See, that's what what, what we're to do today. Is to just simply, gently, honestly lay the truth of Scripture out in front of people. Let them see what it really says. Where are we going to get this? Can we teach with that kind of authority? Well, the only authority that we have is His authority. We can only teach with His authority. We can only declare what He's declared. We can only say with any confidence what He has said. But what He has said, we can say with total confidence. Because it's true. And because it can have a profound impact on people. You know, often when we are asserting our own opinion, we try to bluff and bluster. We uh, use the age-honored technique of, if you really don't have authority, just yell. It's a uh, 
technique that parents and school teachers know well. But that's not what we have to do. All we have to do is simply, honestly, lay the truth that Jesus has given us in his word. Lay it before them. And it continues to have that same authority, that same amazing ring of truth. This is in such a, a contrast to what we get today as truth. We're told today that there is no absolute truth, that there are no standards except for the ones that you set. You, know, you determine what or who has value and, and what doesn't. You determine right from wrong. You are the source of truth. We know that's not truth. That just isn't true. There is an objective standard of reality. There is an objective reality out there. There is right and wrong. There is truth. Truth that we can sink our teeth into. Truth that can lead us to to spiritual health and to integrity in relationships. And it's our job to to turn people on to this truth as freely as we have been given it. Jesus said, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Just before that, in the verse before that, he actually said, "Um, if you abide in my word, then you are my disciples, and you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. You see, it is His Word that is knowable. It is His Word that is true. It is His Word that sets us free. And it's His Word we want to give to others as freely as it's been given to us. And again, as we do that simply, gently, it will have a profound effect. It will have that amazing ring of truth. Anyway, back to our story. Jesus uh, taught, and they were impressed. But then what happened next left them overwhelmed, thunderstruck. What happened is that as he was teaching, a man started screaming. He started yelling. And we're told that, that really what was going on was an unclean spirit, a demon in him, was shouting. It was shouting, What do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to ruin us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, please, nobody do that (laughs) while I'm speaking. I won't keep my train. That would completely throw me off. But it didn't ruffle Jesus at all. You know, what a disruption. But I would think at the same time, what what an endorsement. You know, here is this supernatural spirit shouting out that Jesus is the Holy One of God. I would think that would be pretty convincing to everyone around. But Jesus says, be quiet. Actually, that's a little too polite. Jesus says, shut up. Literally, he said, muzzle it. He didn't want this demon speaking, even though what the demon was saying was true. Now, why not? Why didn't he want this free advertising? Why didn't he want this this kind of amazing testimony? Well, I think the reason that Jesus silenced the demon is because all the demon was doing was giving a a, a mere statement of truth apart from the power of of God. And it wasn't leading anybody to respond to the love of God with gratitude and dependence. It wasn't pulling anyone toward God in faith. It was having the exact opposite effect. It was immunizing people from the power of truth. See, the power of truth is that it draws us to the one 
who is truth himself, the giver of life. The way the truth sets us free is it leads us to the one who can set us free, the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And just the mere statement of truth tends to harden apart from the love and the power of God. It tends to immunize us. Many of us grew up in in churches where we were catechized or where we were put into Sunday school and just had been fed, just you know, indoctrinated in the sterile truth of Scripture. And the result wasn't that, that our hearts stirred within us and that we longed to be drawn close to our Savior. The result was that we were totally turned off. And, and these truths became, became dull, lifeless things. See, Jesus was unwilling for that to happen. Jesus was unwilling for them to be immunized. That's why later on he starts speaking in parables for the exact same reason. He doesn't want to rob people of the delight of truth. He doesn't want them to miss the excitement of understanding, of seeing things clearly for the first time with a heart of faith. And so he begins to teach in parables. And here he refuses to let the demons uh, preempt and, and, and rush his plan for explaining the truth to these people in a way they can understand it, a way they can deal with it. Again, the result of what happened was wonder. People were blown away. But they weren't drawn to faith. They weren't repenting and believing in the good news, which is exactly what Jesus wanted to accomplish. So Jesus, with a direct command, without a lot of elaborate procedure, he tells the demon to get out, and the demon does. He leaves. And word spread like wildfire. We're told immediately the word went out through the whole region. We'll see in a second, that immediately meant within a few hours, everyone in the whole region knew. Then we're told that that same day they went over to Peter and Andrew's house, verse 29. And immediately after they'd come out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was laying sick with a fever, and immediately they spoke to to him about her. And he came to her, and he raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she waited on them. And when evening had come, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city had gathered at the door, and he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak, because they knew who he was. See, Peter and James and... Andrew and John and Jesus, they went over to Peter's house. And when they got there, Peter's mother-in-law was sick. She must have been staying with them. And they told Jesus about it. And he immediately, we're told, went up, took her by the hand, gently helped her to her feet. And her fever was gone. She was healed. And then she went about her normal activities. She, as a gracious hostess, began to wait on her guests to take care of their needs. You know, there was no fanfare, there was no big show, there was no uh, write-up in the National Enquirer, itinerant preacher heals woman of fever. There were no uh, bookings for the Donahue or the Sally, Jesse, Raphael, or I, forget, I get lost in those names. You know, there was no Oprah shows. It was just very simple, no big deal. She just went about her business, and Jesus went about his business quietly. See, I think that's the import, the, the, the significance of this 
miracle was that it was no big deal. As far as we know, this fever wasn't life-threatening. She was just sick and in bed. Jesus came and he healed her because there, there are no parts of our lives, no insignificant things about us. Nothing that is significant to us is insignificant to him. He cares about the headaches and the fevers and the parking places and all the details of our lives because what is significant to us is thereby significant to him. My daughter Jessica brought me an ant on a little card yesterday, Friday. She was taking care of this ant and it was crawling back and forth on the little card. And she had to get her coat on and some other things. And I had to watch the ant for a while while she got all dressed. Now, personally, I really didn't care a whole lot about that ant. I would have been just as happy to squish it. That ant was not important to me. But the very fact that it was important to her made it important to me. And I took care of that ant. You see, we're told casting all your cares upon him because he cares for you. So if it's important to you, it's important to him. There are not, There's nothing too small for his attention. We're told that once the sun went down, see, the Sabbath was over and people started coming. Before the sun went down, this was still the Sabbath and people couldn't do any work on the Sabbath. They couldn't even carry somebody to Jesus. If they were to offer their arm to help someone walk, that would have been work and they couldn't do that. But as soon as the sun was down, people streamed from everywhere because the word had gone out, like we said. It had gone everywhere and so the whole city, the whole region began showing up at Jesus' door. Jesus began to heal many and he cast out many demons but he would not allow the demons to speak because they knew who he was. And again, he wasn't going to let them preempt his schedule. Even though he wouldn't let the demons speak, it seemed, though, that his schedule was being preempted nonetheless. He had come to teach. And here were all of these crowds, all of these throngs. See, some of them, a few of them had come to be healed. Some come to be, to be freed from demons. But the majority of those people were there for the show. This was amazing stuff. He was casting out demons. He was here. This was better than David Copperfield. And they were all crowding around to see the, the, the display, the spectacle, and, and talking about it among themselves. But was that what Jesus was there for? Is that, is that his style? Is that how he's been showing himself to be? The showman playing to the crowds. You know, is that what he really wanted to do. I look at verses 35 through 39. I think this is the key. <clears throat> and early in the morning, while it was still dark, he arose and went out and departed to a lonely place and was praying there. And Simon and his companions hunted for him. And they found him. And they said to him, everyone's looking for you. And he said to them, let's go somewhere else to the towns nearby in order that I might preach there also. For that's what I came out for. And he went into their synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out demons. The first thing, the thing we notice in this section is that Jesus got up before anybody else got out of bed. And he sneaked off to be by himself. He sneaked off to pray. He just needed to get away. To, to, to get away from the crowds and to spend some time with his father. 
So we're told he got up and went to, in my translation, it's a lonely place. That's the same word that in last week's section was translated wilderness, the, the, the desolate place, the dry place, the alone place, where we find ourselves alone and, 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 and empty and thirsty, where Jesus went and was tempted, was tested by the enemy. Now it has become, instead of a place of, of, of stress and testing and hunger, where Jesus felt that loneliness and that hunger himself, it has become a place of refuge for him, a place of communion with the Father. You know, I, uh, my heart stirs, I long for that, to be alone and not lonely, to have the quiet places of my soul, not be the places where I struggle constantly with temptation, not be the places of insecurity and of, of struggle, but a place of communion with the Father. And that's what Jesus can do for us. Even if right now the idea of a quiet time, a time where you are alone with God, a time where you're, where you're quiet and looking in, even if that is now totally unattractive to you, because for you, times of looking in are times of pain or times of lust or times of, of, of struggling with self-contempt or insecurity. See, Jesus can change all that. He changed it in his life. He changed the wilderness from a place of threat to a place of comfort, from a draining place to a place of refreshment in his own life. The wilderness, the, the alone place, is no longer a place of tension, but a place of refuge. He can do that in our lives. But that's not the point I want to make here. Uh, what I want to point out here was Jesus' agenda, his plans, his priorities, what he thought was important. See, Jesus sneaks off. The crowds come. The disciples are left there with all these people, and they're thinking, what are we going to do with all these people? And so they, they panic. They frantically run out and look for Jesus. And when they find him, they say, what are you doing here? Everybody's looking for you. The place is crowded. This is great. You're a sensation. They love you. Come on. You know, this is exactly what we wanted. The crowds, the PR, the press is here, everything. Come on, Jesus. Jesus' response is, let's get out of here. And let's go someplace else where I can preach, where I can teach. Because that's what I came out for. You know, why? Why would Jesus want to walk away from all of this? I mean, this seemed like exactly what he would have wanted. All the people there. Now he can minister to all these people. But you see, Jesus saw through the excitement. He saw these people were not coming to hear him. They were not coming to listen to what he had to say and to take his word into them, responding to it in obedience. They were coming for the spectacle. They were coming for the show. They were coming to see and be amazed. Quite frankly, that just wasn't worth Jesus' time. That's not what he was about. It was a waste of his precious time. So he wanted to leave. He wanted to walk off and go someplace else. See, Jesus healed people out of his compassion. He saw their need. He saw people were, were demonized and they needed deliverance. His heart went out to them. When he saw that they were sick, his heart went out to them. And he didn't walk away. He didn't ignore them. When he saw them, his heart was stirred with compassion and he reached out to them. He loved them. He met 
their needs. But when he saw that the dramatic, the spectacular, was overshadowing and distracting from the, the essential, from his ministry of his word, explaining his word, teaching people, giving them truth that can set them free. When he saw that, he said, let's get out of here. Let's go someplace else. What's really important is being overshadowed, is being obscured. See, we as people always want the dramatic. We want to see the demon cast out of the person as they're writhing and their heads spinning around. We want to be impressed. We want to be over, we want to be odd. Last Friday, I guess it was a week ago Friday, 2020, did a thing on a, a young woman who they were exorcising a demon from her. And they showed a woman who was writhing and speaking in strained voices as the, as the, the exorcists tried to bring that demon out of her. And then later on Nightline, they had a debate. They showed some clips of that. Had a debate between two priests on the whole idea of demon possession and exorcism. Newsweek, Time, they both ran articles on the thing this last week. Now, this stuff sells. This is sensation. Last Thursday, Statesman ran a full-page uh, article on the miracles at Medjugorje. Medjugorje is a, a little village in Yugoslavia where Mary has supposedly been meeting every day with six young children and bringing them messages for themselves and for the world. So far, over 15 million people have made pilgrimage to Medjugorje just in hopes of seeing something spectacular, something to impress them, something supernatural. Fifteen million people. The other day I was riding in an airplane and I got talking to the guy next to me and fairly quickly in our conversation we discovered we were both believers and uh, he started talking about his church and he was so excited. And he was telling me about their, their, their healing services, about prophecies, and about signs and wonders, and, and speaking in other languages. And as I was sitting there, quite honestly, I was thinking, boy, how come our church is so dull? <laughs> I mean, it doesn't even seem very, very spiritual. I mean, I never see anything really supernatural happen. But let me tell you what's going on. I'm convinced that, in fact, demons do infest people and do need to be expelled. Though I wouldn't venture any kind of guess at what was happening on 2020. I I didn't even see the show, honestly. And I would not be so presumptuous to think I knew what was going on at Medjugorje, whether those appearances were real. I flat out, frankly, don't know. I do know what I think about prophecy and healing and, and, and tongues, and I have a lot of thoughts on those. But those are really beside the point. What I think is to the point is what Jesus says in Matthew 7. He said, starting in verse 20, let me just read this to you. So then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. 
Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. He said, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be compared to a wise man who builds his house on a rock. And he describes that, a house on a rock, and the storms come, and that house stands firm. Then he contrasts that with someone who builds their house on sand, and the storms come, and the house is smashed. And he says, those are the people who don't listen to me, who don't hear my word. Because, see, that's the heart of it. That's the essential point. We like the dramatic. We like the sensational Because we think that somehow that gives proof of the supernatural. Somehow that even gives proof of the gospel. Proof of our own faith. That we're not making all this up. That we're not imagining it. But we're sadly mistaken when we think that is the proof of God's activity. We see in the Old Testament and the New Testament miracle after miracle. And it didn't convince anybody. They reacted in fear, in immediate awe. But there was no long-lasting effect. And so we're mistaken if we think that is the way God is going to convince us. That is the way God's going to change us. It just doesn't work. It doesn't do any permanent effect. The old Puritans had a good way of, of, of describing the distinction. They distinguished between the uh, what they called the operations of the Spirit and the graces of the Spirit. And under the operations of the Spirit, they talked about the activities that the Holy Spirit does. The gifts, the signs, the wonders, the healings, the miracles. And they argued very well from Scripture that the Holy Spirit does these things at different times in history, totally at His discretion, by His choice. And He does it through whomever He chooses. See, in fact, there are many instances in both the Old and the New Testament where the Holy Spirit acts through an unbeliever to bring a prophecy or to work a miracle or to bring something about. You see, these activities, these operations of the Holy Spirit don't tell us anything about the the person who is involved with them. They don't tell us about their spiritual maturity or whether they're even a believer or not. And they don't tell us anything about the Spirit's agenda, what He's trying to do, where He's going. They don't do anything in changing us inside. However, the graces of the Spirit, what Jesus called back there in Matthew 7, you'll know them by their fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. That is the true demonstration of the power of God. As the Holy Spirit takes the words of our Lord and plants them in our lives and produces in our lives the fruit of Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. You see, that's the real power of God. That's the real miracle, the quiet transformation of our character to become like Him. And the other stuff is fun. And in fact, we, we can't ignore the rest. When we see somebody in need uh, of deliverance, when we see somebody who needs healing, when we see somebody with physical needs, we can't turn our back. Compassion compels us like it did our Lord to reach out to them, to care for them, to do what we can for them. But we cannot, we must not be distracted 
from the real power of God as he gently, quietly goes about the transformation of our character by feeding us on his word. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. When when Jesus asked the disciples, are you going to leave me? The disciples looked at him and they said, where would we go? You have the words of life. See, again, Jesus came to bring us life, to bring us his words of life. And the response he's looking for is not awe, is not woe. The response he's looking for are hearts that will listen, that will pay close attention to what he has to say. People who will think about what he says and respond to it, obey it. This is illustrated in our our last story. Verse 40. It says, And a leper came to him, beseeching him, and falling on his knees before him, and saying to him, If you are willing, you can make me clean. And moved with compassion, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing. Be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was clean. And sternly, or excuse me, and he sternly warned him and immediately sent him away. And he said to him, See to it that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a testimony to them. But he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news about to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in unpopulated areas, and they were coming to him from everywhere. Well, again, we see the enormous compassion of our Lord. He looks at this guy who has leprosy, this guy who probably had had open running sores all over his body, who, who, who probably smelled foully, who was was deformed, grotesque, repulsive. We're told when Jesus looked at him, he was filled with compassion. And he reached out and he touched the man. We're told literally he took hold of the man. And what I think he did is he, he grabbed this guy by the shoulders. This man who by law no one could come near. This man who had been thrown out of society, couldn't even live among people anymore, had to live outside of the the towns. Often they lived in the tombs as just a place to find shelter. This man who probably hadn't been touched in years, and Jesus took him by the shoulders. He drew him to himself and embraced him, hugged him. And as he was holding the man, perhaps the man sobbing on his shoulders, he whispered, I am willing. Be clean. Immediately, the man was clean. In Scripture, leprosy is always the symbol, the the physical symbol for sin. See, leprosy is physically what sin is spiritually. Sin deforms us. It causes us to rot. It causes us to stink, to fall apart. And as God opens our eyes and begins to show us sin for what it really is, 
for what it really does, for what it really looks like. We realize how repulsive we are. As he begins to open our eyes so we see our little sins, our nice little neat sins, a little tiny speck in our own eye, when we start to see it for what it really is and all its, it, it, its uh, ugly, all of its, its sickening glory, then we are repulsed, even from ourselves, and we, we, we feel compelled to shout out, unclean, unclean, like the, like the lepers of Jesus' day were required to do. But see, Jesus looks right at us. And he sees us in, in all of our grotesque and grossness. And he reaches out and he takes us by the shoulders. And he draws us to himself. And he whispers, I'm willing. Be clean. And we, when we see ourselves for what we are. And we see the incredible compassion of our Lord. We're just left melting in his arms. Now take a look at what Jesus said uh, next. We're told he sternly warned this guy. Uh, It's literally, he scolded this guy. He was rough on this guy. He said, don't tell anybody. In Greek, it's a double negative. uh, And you can get away with that in Greek. It just emphasizes the negative. He says, tell Nobody, nothing, no how. Please don't say anything. The guy went off and told everybody he could find. He probably thought, well, Jesus is just being a little bit false, or a little bit too modest here, too humble. I'll do him a favor. I'll help him out. I'll let everybody know. This is too important to keep under wraps. You see, Jesus had said, go show yourself to the priest. Get back in society, but do it quietly. Do it privately. Let's not let this become a distraction. Jesus wasn't being falsely or superficially humble. He just knew the effect of this would be that people would come out for the show again. People would start coming out again just to be amazed, just to see the spectacular, just to to be impressed. And that's not what Jesus is about. That's not what he wanted to do. See, the result of this guy's disobedience was that Jesus could no longer go into cities. He could no longer go into synagogues and teach like he wanted to do. That was his plan, was to go from synagogue to synagogue and explain the truth and penetrate people's hearts with the word. But now he couldn't do that. He had to stay outside, away from the populated areas, and people were just mobbing to him. People were thronging to him. See, what Jesus is looking for is not somebody who will do him a great favor. Somebody who, who, who will, will blow his trumpet for him. What he's looking for is people who will listen to what he has to say and who will respond to what he says, who will obey. And what are you looking for in following Jesus? Do you want to be amazed? Uh, Do you want to be impressed? Do you want excitement? Or do we really believe that it's the quiet, consistent ministry of His Word that changes us, that transforms us, that really demonstrates 
the power of God in our lives as He makes us more like Himself, as He feeds us constantly and consistently on His Word. Jesus has compassion on us. He doesn't ignore our needs, no matter how small. If it's important to us, it's important to Him. He doesn't ignore our needs, no matter how big. But is that what we're really after? Is that all we're really after, seeing Jesus meet all of our physical needs? On the uh, last July 3rd, we celebrated our centennial as a state. And I went down to the, the stadium where uh, they had the, the, that centennial celebration. And it was awesome. Especially the end with all the fireworks. They had uh, Lee Greenwood's God Bless the USA blasting out of the speakers. And those fireworks were going up and blowing up just in time to the music. It was, it was overwhelming. And they were just more and more. And it was so dramatic. He just kind of went, he could hardly breathe. But as we were walking away, talking about how spectacular that really was, how difficult it would ever be to top something like that, you look up and the stars were back. And you could see the stars again. And they were quietly, gently going about their business, speaking of the majesty, the glory of our God, His wisdom, His greatness, His love. You know, I love fireworks. But they'll never replace the stars. And following Jesus sometimes is exciting, even, even thrilling at times. But it's the constant, consistent, quiet ministry of His Word drawing us to Him so that we can receive life. Well, let's pray.